Greetings and welcome to the Upward Call number 13. Rejoice and pray. Rejoice and pray. And indeed, we will today together rejoice and pray concerning this great topic that we're covering today, which can be found in Philippians chapter 4. And so turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible handy, our notes at whitesrun.org actually contain hyperlinks to the uh, to the scriptures. And so it's a good, convenient way to follow along and keep up with the scripture reading as well. Uh, I am Eric Newcomer, and I'm with Whites Run Baptist Church, and we are studying the upward call of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this upward call is to, to be more like him, to approach him, to know him more. And so is this tremendous privilege that is available only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here we go in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to talk about this, uh, and we're following up from last time. Last time we had a sermon called Agree in the Lord, and we saw that there was apparently some division in the Philippian church. And there we looked at the key to unity, which is an emphasis of the entire letter, this idea of unity. But in that passage earlier in the chapter, we saw that what gives us unity as a church is that we have a common Lord, and from that, a common fellowship and a common labor, the gospel, a common destiny, which is life, a common joy in the Lord, and a common advocate with God, who we go to in prayer, and a common peace which guards us. Now this time we're going to expound on two of those notions. We didn't talk about any of those things in particular depth last time, but this time we're really going to look at our common joy and our common advocate. So we're looking at the idea of rejoicing and prayer because an advocate is one who intercedes for someone else. And indeed, Jesus Christ is our advocate at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us in our prayers. And so we're going to look at today rejoicing and prayer. And we're going to start in verse 4 of chapter 4, and we're going to go through verse 7. Let's take a look at what we've got. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day, and we ask for your help, Lord, your help with your word. We pray you would give us understanding of these things, that you would give us the faith to respond uh, properly by being obedient to what we learn here today. And Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts and minds to the truth and that you would fill them up. And Lord, may we experience your presence by your word, as indeed you have promised that it will accomplish its purpose in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in these verses, uh, we find the several imperatives, several commands, that is, in these ver verses. And we're going to really focus in on two of those. We're really going to look at this command to rejoice and this command to pray, because the other imperatives involved in the passage, and we'll look at a couple of them momentarily, they kind of feed into these two ideas. 
And so we're going to look at the to rejoice and pray. And I'm going to bring up a bit of an outline for us that's going to help us, first of all, explore this topic of rejoicing. Now, first of all, uh, in verse 4, he gives this command and he gives it emphatically. Let's look at that for just a moment. He gives this command quite emphatically. He says in verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And so it's, it's quite emphatic. The way that he presents this to us is by saying it twice. Now, what is rejoicing? Rejoicing means to take joy in something. And as we know, as we study the Bible, joy is something that surpasses happiness. A joy is more an inward thing. It manifests first as an inward feeling, this rejoicing, a conviction of something good that has the result then of lifting the spirit of the person more than happiness can, because happiness is dependent somewhat on circumstances and somewhat on someone's uh, personal condition at the time. But joy surpasses that. And joy is not a fleeting thing like humor or distraction or amusement, but it's something that lasts. It seems to build upon a foundation. It seems to stay when all other things go away. Now, proper Christian rejoicing goes beyond just this inward pondering of things. Rather, the proper Christian rejoicing is expressed and it can be expressed in a, in a way as simple as a statement, as raising a hand in the air to, to worship God or to shout or to sing. And so rejoicing is, is the expression of joy is really what this is. Now, I want you to see the irony momentarily of who this is coming from. This rejoicing and this command to rejoice, this emphatic command to rejoice, is coming from Paul. And as we look at Paul's situation, I really want you to consider this. Paul is in prison, and he's facing some uncertainty about whether he will live or die. We saw that in chapter 1. There are rivals that are preaching Christ for the wrong motives, out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. They're trying to hurt Paul while he's in prison, like he needs more of that. But we see that in chapter 1 also. And he's writing to this church in Philippi, which is seemed to be, it seems to be having some trouble with unity between at least two of the members there, which he mentioned in the verses prior in chapter 4 here. But even in the midst of this difficulty, he rejoices. As a matter of fact, rejoicing becomes a key word in the letter. Let's look at it. It shows up in verse 4 when he speaks of he rejoices in their partnership in the gospel. When he's praying for them, he rejoices that they have partnered in the gospel with him. And then later in that same chapter, as he talks about these evil people that are preaching Christ with bad intentions, he rejoices anyway. Because the gospel is being shared either way. Jesus Christ's name is being made known. And in that same verse, he turns to the topic that, uh, that he is going to be delivered from his current situation one way or another, either by being made free or by death. And he says, either way, I'm going to rejoice in that. He also rejoices in chapter 2 at the spiritual progress of the Philippian church. 
And he says that they likewise should be glad and rejoice with him about those things. And Paul talks about then their rejoicing at receiving back of their beloved Epaphroditus, late in chapter 2. And he rejoiced also that the Philippian church has helped him, and we'll see that later in chapter 4. Although he's not rejoicing in the help itself, but rather in the blessing that the church will have for having helped him. And so this is Paul. He, he is in this strange situation of offering up all this, these occasions for having joy and for rejoicing, even though he's writing them from prison in the difficult situation he is in, and perhaps a difficult situation that they also were in. He asked them to make his joy complete, having the mind of Christ. That's worth taking a look at. He says in in verse 2 of chapter 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. His unity would bring bring him great joy. And that mind that he speaks of is the humble mind of no other than Christ himself, who humbled himself to come and serve in a way all the way to death. And so he's asking them to have this humble mind that puts others ahead of themselves. That is what would give him great joy. He commands them to rejoice in the Lord in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, and then again here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. So he's asking, really commanding them to partake of something that he himself, despite his circumstances, is indeed practicing. So Paul is not asking them to do something he himself is not already doing. He's already doing this, and he asks them to join him in it. And he adds some qualifiers to the command as we take a look at this. When he says, rejoice in the Lord, um, he says, in the Lord. Consistently, Paul rejoices in the Lord. In other words, his focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the source of his joy, his satisfaction in Christ, the work of Christ. His rejoicing for that, we just reviewed, is all these things. He's not rejoicing in his situation. His situation is miserable, just that he rejoices rather that God is working despite the difficulty of the situation. He's not rejoicing in this opposition he has to the gospel, but that the gospel is being preached. And he is not rejoicing in his potential death, but he's rejoicing that God will be glorified even if he should die. That's really important is that he has this rejoicing despite the situation. He is rejoicing because his rejoicing is based in the Lord. That's the real key. The real difference between authentic Christianity and every other religion is this. Everything can be completely falling apart from a worldly point of view. But in biblical Christianity, we know that the Lord is faithful to continue his work, to continue his plans. This is why you can always rejoice in the Lord, which is the second qualifier he gives. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Because you are rejoicing in the Lord, you can always rejoice because the Lord never changes. The Lord never sleeps. He is always working. We cannot always rejoice in our circumstances because they can change. The things of this world we can't rejoice in because they fade away. We can't rejoice even in people because people sin and fall short. Yes, even in the church. But the Lord never fails. His plans always move forward. If you think this is a little crazy, and if you think that this madness is limited only to Paul, the rest of Scripture bears witness that God's plans will stand forever. Let me take you a tour of a few of these things. Look how it's stated in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. He says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plan of his heart to all generations. God is always working. He's always redeeming. He's always perfecting. He's always judging. He's always accounting every bad deed and preparing it for judgment. And he's accounting every good deed in Christ and preparing it for reward. He never rests. He never stops. He never fails until all is accomplished. Look how this is stated. And this seems to be a corporate kind of statement of the thing in uh, Psalm 33 where he brings the counsel that is the plans or purposes of the nations to nothing. Uh, but look, he even says this is individual as well. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We all have our ideas. We all have our things to do, but we can't always count on those things being done. We can fail or something can get in our way or we could pass from this world before they're accomplished. But the Lord's plans don't fail. They continue on. They surpass generations and centuries and millennia. Kings come and kings go. But the word of Lord stands and it continues to be fulfilled. This is powerfully important. This is much of what Jesus said. And he'd said it concerning the word of God. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This was the Lord Jesus Christ speaking on the issue. One thing that we can see in our current context is we've seen with the, the COVID-19 lockdown that many things in the world ground to a halt. Many, many churches even stopped meeting. But one thing kept going. The Lord kept going. His plans kept moving forward. He kept saving people. He kept sanctifying his people. He kept loving them. He kept moving them to love others. Right now, as an example, the Chinese government is imprisoning and persecuting and confiscating the property of Christians. They're confiscating Bibles and destroying them. They're controlling the information on the internet. But God is still saving people in China. The reports still come through that his faithful people are still there and they are still worshiping and they are still gathering in secret and they are still spreading the gospel. And in fact, because it is so difficult to be a Christian there, that might be the healthiest Christian population on the planet because it would not be full of many false converts. 
This is how you can rejoice in the Lord always because he is ultimately and completely in control and he's moving his plans forward with his perfect plans for you and for all the redeemed. Paul found this so important and he said it twice, rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. Rejoicing is critically important to the health of the Christian and the health of the local body of believers that comes together for worship. We must constantly review, therefore, who God is and what he has done to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep us rejoicing. When we lift up praises to him, when we tell others of how great he is, and we tell others what he has done and who he is, that is all a form of rejoicing. We rejoice in him. When we think of who he is and what he has done, and it gives us joy, indeed that is rejoicing. When we do that together, and when we meet together and we talk about it, it's rejoicing. And it's even better when it's in company because then one person feeds off another and we edify one another is how the Bible puts it. That means to build each other up. It becomes the, a mutual upbuilding that we take part in as we rejoice together and somebody says something and somebody adds to it and somebody adds something else and, and pretty soon you're rejoicing and collectively you can rejoice so much more than individually. That's the first command is to rejoice. The second command I want to focus on is on praying. But there's another command tied up with that in verse 6. Let's take a look at verse 6 here. He says, do not be anxious for anything. So that's a command and it's a negative command. Before he gives us the positive imperative to make things known to God, he gives us this negative one in contrast saying, do not be anxious about anything. Paul doesn't want us worrying. It's very clear here. It's something to avoid. So then prayer is presented as the solution to the anxiety, the solution, the opposite of being anxious. If anyone had occasion to be anxious, it was Paul. As we mentioned his troubles before, he was imprisoned, waiting his trial or sentencing. We don't know what stage in that process he was, but he was not sure what the outcome was going to be. He was waiting. His life was in the balance. And then he had a bunch of people trying to make his life miserable, even while he was still in prison. And then he gets news of the Philippian church having a potential split brewing. And he was so concerned that he wrote a letter with a major theme being unity. And Paul had many other churches with problems to cause him great anxiety. You can read the other letters of Paul in the New Testament, then they're just filled with problems. People that they call Judaizers going around church to church and adding to the gospel and, and trying to tear down the work that Paul had done in establishing these churches in the truth and in the grace of God. There were others preaching false gospels already. Already there were all kinds of heresies as early as the first century, those middle decades of the first century when Paul was ministering. Many of his fellow workers in the gospel had abandoned him. And he had to have on his mind all the time, what would be their fate? Will they one day come back? Are they going to go and lead other people astray? Are they going to spread lies about 
me or my situation? Are they going to spread lies about Christ? Are they going to end up denying it all? Paul's situation makes me anxious just thinking about it. But he says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now, this word that he uses means to worry or be concerned for something. But this word can be used in a positive or a negative sense. He used it positively back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he spoke of Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned. So there's the word there for your welfare. So this would be in the positive a concern, but here clearly and in the cross-reference we're about to look at, it's used negatively to be anxious. Look how Jesus uses this in Matthew 6, 25. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Specifically, he's talking about what kingdom people will be like and how they enter into the kingdom and how they behave when they're in the kingdom. And then he contrasts that with the people who are not in the kingdom that appear to be towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount. But here in chapter 6, Jesus reviews the necessities of life. He brings before the reader our food and our clothing, two of our three critical things that we need to survive in this world. And he challenges us to think about these things. And he challenges us, why should we, the people of God, the citizens of his kingdom, why should we be anxious about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear? And he brings forth examples. He says, look at the birds. The birds are concerned about what they're going to eat. The Lord feeds them. And what about the lilies of the field? That is a beautiful flowers we see in the field. He says, you know, they're not concerned with how they're dressed. And yet Solomon in all his spl splendor didn't hold a candle to how God dresses the lilies. He then concludes it. And he concludes it very interestingly in Matthew 6, 33. He says, don't be anxious about seeking all these things. Don't worry about seeking these things. Don't go chasing these around. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus makes it clear. I don't want you worrying about the things that you need. If you're seeking first the kingdom, they will be provided to you. And there is many a Christian testimony, and I can give you many of my own testimony about this being true and working out in your life. If indeed you are pursuing the gospel work first, then it seems that what you need just follows along with it. This is why we shouldn't be anxious. This is really what we're talking about here. And we're talking about seeking first the kingdom. Well, how do we do that? Well, that is obviously in rejoicing and praying. If we rejoice and pray, we are obviously kingdom seekers. We are obviously looking for those things. If we are rejoicing and praying, we're most interested in the kingdom of God. If we truly understand what God has planned for us, we will not have cause for anxiety. That's why rejoicing and praying are the cures for anxiety. Now he says this, and when he turns to the topic of prayer, the first thing he says about it is in everything. Now, in contrast to the anything that you should not be anxious about, he says then in everything, I, I want you to take those to the Lord in prayer. 
Paul says everything should be brought to him in prayer, literally everything. It seems because Christian experience shows us, it seems that almost anything can become an occasion for anxiety. And there truly is no aspect of our life that God is not concerned with. He is concerned with every bit of it. All of it masters and matters in the grand scheme of things for him. And if we are truly to be the living sacrifice that he calls us to be, if we are truly responding to this upward call in Christ to experience what it means we are new creations being conformed to the image of Christ, then no thing should be out of bounds in prayer. Everything is fair game. Everything's on the table. And that's what he tells us to do in everything. Go to the Lord in prayer. And then he continues this emphasis by using four different words to speak of prayer. Look what it says there in that verse. It says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Four different things, a prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, requests. Four different words he uses. And Paul says to make all those things known in all those different ways. Now, you can be thankful that I'm not going to weary you with an exposition of what all four of those things mean. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, Paul's clear purpose is simply to emphasize that all things should be brought before the Lord in all kinds of ways. But secondly, there's so much overlap in these terms. I think to go seeking significance in each one is really to torture the text. We'll let the translation stand in this. Clearly, prayer is referring specifically to prayer addressed to God. So it's that divine emphasis that he brings up first. And then supplication is an expression of need. When someone expresses a need to somebody, it's called supplication. Thanksgiving, of, Kurt, of course, is to express gratitude toward what's already been received or what we expect will be received. And, and then the request is simply letting him know what we need. And so Paul makes sure that we know that every single thing should be brought before the Lord in every single way that we can. And this prayer, together with rejoicing, we have looked at two of the threes, keys here for curing anxiety. The third we'll look at next time, which is in the verses that follow this. But I want to turn the topic right now to the topic of peace, because there's a fantastic promise here in verse number seven here. This promise is that there'll be peace when these things have been brought before the Lord. It is a peace, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at at what we mean here. First of all, he says it is the peace of God. The peace of God. It is divine in nature. Therefore, it supersedes all other kinds of peace. Now, does he mean the inner peace of a calm spirit? Well, certainly he does. This would make the contrast with anxiety make some sense here. It is an internal ease, a spiritual rest. As some might say, this word peace can also mean 
a cessation of hostilities. In other words, like the end to a war. Could he be speaking about it in that way, that peace with God? Well, certainly he can be. But I'll say this about it, that without peace with God, that is, you know, when God is, without God having our enemy, or being our enemy, there can be no peace. If God is our enemy, there there can't possibly be an inner peace unless you be completely mad. And so when he talks about, you know, is this peace with God? Yeah, peace with God has to be there for there to be any kind of inner peace. There's no peace of mind without having peace with the single most dangerous thing above the universe. That is God. We must have peace with God in order to have this peace that surpasses understanding. This is not the kind of peace that denies the reality of the situation. This is not the kind of madness that comes over somebody who, whose mind has played a trick on them because the truth is too much to bear. And so the mind shuts off reality for a moment and they're in this peace, but it's a peace of ignorance. It's a peace of a lie that their mind has contrived to protect them from severe psychological damage or going completely crazy. No, the peace that Paul talks about is a peace that understands who is sovereign over the situation. It is the peace of God. It's not the peace that just blindly walks around singing that everything is awesome. It is the peace that says, God has got this. And indeed he does. And we'll, we'll see that here momentarily. So he first says that this is the peace of God. And then he goes on to say that it is surpassing or it surpasses all understanding. That's a very interesting word because the word means to transcend. That is to go beyond something. The word means uh, simply to be better than. Now, he used this word back in Philippians 2.3. And back there, here's what he said. He said this back there. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, the, the counting of others more significant or better than or more important than yourselves. That's this word in action. He used it again in Philippians 3.8, in which this is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And he says, it's there in that, that word, surpassing. This is a worth that of knowing Christ that's far beyond anything else that Paul had to offer, all the things that he contributes and, and counts as loss. So this word means to surpass or go beyond, or it means better than. In other words, this piece that he speaks of is a piece that is better than understanding. And this is the beautiful thing because when we talk about the having the peace of God and re, being able to rejoice in God, being able to confidently go to Him in prayer, we don't have to completely understand our situation. We don't have to understand our opposition or their motives. We don't even have to understand what God is doing in it. It's covered in faith. We have faith that God is doing something in it, that God is working through it. So then we can take things to the Lord 
so far as we understand it. And even if our understanding of the situation is minuscule, we can just go and tell him how we feel about it. We can go and tell him what we know. He can fill in the blanks because he knows. And I have to admit, I struggle with this. I really struggle with with the idea because I'm always obsessed with understanding a situation. And I tend to wrestle with a thing until I understand it. Now that's helped me in understanding the Bible and being able to effectively teach the Bible. But when it comes to human behavior or situations I find myself in or, or people who oppose the gospel, sometimes I have a genuine difficulty in understanding what they're doing and I kind of obsess about it. But the important thing, it's okay for me to think about it. It's okay for me to try to understand it as long as I first take these things to God in prayer to avoid being anxious about them. There's a, there's a big difference between being anxious about something and just desiring to understand it to be of some help in the situation. So I take these things to God first. Then in peace, I can seek understanding. And often it's only after I accept a thing and only after I come to peace with it that the Lord will grant me understanding because peace is better than understanding. He doesn't want to give me understanding. He wants to give me peace. And the understanding may follow. But I can tell you this, there are some things I've wrestled with that I still don't understand. But I'm at peace with those things because I know he's got it. And that is how it guards our hearts and minds. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace keeps us from being troubled. And this peace often keeps us from sin. That's how the the peace can guard our hearts and our minds. See, when we have anxiety about a situation, we crave a resolution to it. And we will seek after any resolution we can find to get away from this this horrible feeling of anxiety. That's when temptation can move in as we search for a solution. We can try to take the wrong way out of our anxiety by trying to escape it with alcohol or drugs or into relationships or, or just numb ourselves in entertainment. That is not healthy. We can cave into the pressure of anxiety to compromise the gospel or to keep the truth locked inside of us. We can deal with anxiety sometimes in a negative way by by giving up on a task that is truly the Lord's will because we felt some anxiety and we backed off. We didn't like the feeling. Do you see the temptations we can fall into because of anxiety? And all these temptations come to us when we are troubled, when we are anxious. But when we have peace, even the most difficult of situations can be endured and then overcome. Because when we have peace, we are truly relying on the power of God. Now, all this sounds good if you think about the the outline that I've given you today is this rejoicing and the prayer and it bringing this peace and that all kind of being the cure for anxiety. 
but it's going to make so much more sense when you actually see it in action. When you actually see this thing in action. We're going to look at an example here in Acts chapter 4 verses 24 through 31 and we're going to see this play out. We're going to see rejoicing. We are going to see prayer and then we are going to see peace. And this is going to be a beautiful example of these things. And we're going to see why they're able to have this rejoicing in this prayer. Here's the situation. In Acts chapters 3 and 4, the apostles are preaching the gospel in a brand new church, you know, months after the, the day of Pentecost, or just a couple years after the day of Pentecost. And they begin to meet resistance from the very same leaders that locked up Jesus, or that, that crucified Jesus. Uh, John and Peter were imprisoned. While they were in prison, the leaders uh, gave them a hard time, told them that they can't be preaching about this stuff anymore, and they beat them, and then they let them go. So they did get let go, but they did suffer for the sake of the gospel. And it also had to give them cause and had to make them think, how are things going to go now? Because the leaders are openly resisting this, and they're going to look for opportunities to shut us down. Well, here's what happened when Peter and John came back to the people, came back to the members of the church and told them what happened. It says, when they heard it, when they heard the news of everything that had happened with the leadership, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? They're quoting from Psalm 2 here. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Yeah, it's in Psalm 2, about a thousand years before Jesus came, and it uses the word anointed, Messiah. They're talking about Jesus. And here they make it plain they're talking about Jesus. For truly in this city, that is Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now I really want you to take this in for a moment. I really want you to think about what has happened here. First of all, they come together and they rejoice. Well, okay, I didn't. you say, I didn't see them rejoicing. No, they lifted up to, to the Lord how good he is. They called him Sovereign Lord. They said, you've done all these things. Look what you have done despite the plotting of all the nations. This is praise to God. This is rejoicing. And they rejoice in the Lord who has it under control. The emphasis of the rejoicing, the emphasis of what they say is that God has got this. And here's how much he's got it. Because think about this, indeed, the Jews did plot against Jesus, but one thing they said early on was make sure that you don't arrest him on the Passover. 
They didn't want him arrested on the Passover because the Passover was a high holy day. It was a Sabbath to the Lord. And they didn't want all this to go down on a holiday because there were a lot more people in town. It would attract a lot more attention. It could then have the potential for really ruining the day for a lot of people and also perhaps maybe cause an uprising because there were a lot of people claiming to follow Jesus at the time. So they said, don't let it happen on the Passover. Guess when it happened? They tried their best and it ended up happening, of course, on the Passover. And the reason is plain because Jesus was the Lamb of God. The tradition on the Passover was to sacrifice a lamb. John the Baptist introduces Jesus. Here he is, the Lamb of God. God gave them the Passover celebration, brought them out of bondage in Egypt and everything, just to set something up for Jesus to fulfill so that we would understand what he did. He was the Lamb of God, and he was sacrificed right there on the Passover. Despite the attempts of others to make it not so, God's plan moves forward. He gets done what he wants to get done, despite the opposition. Now, the funny thing is, it's not really just despite the opposition, because it's actually the opposition he used to accomplish these things. And they were acting to their own desires. They weren't mind-numbed robots that were pawns of God. They were really thinking and they were plotting and they were exerting their own will. And yet it played right into the hands of God because he is that great. So they, they lift this up to the Lord and they rejoice over it and then they pray. They skipped the opportunity to be anxious about these things. Now, it's not to say some of them weren't. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they had their moments of anxiety. But they fought through it, and they rejoiced, and they prayed, and peace came over them. And you say, wait a minute, where do you see peace in the passage there? Look what they asked for. In verse 29, they said, look upon their threats and grant to us to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't say, strike these people down, get them out of the way, make our lives easy. No, they said, give us boldness that we may go on. And look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was answered in the affirmative. Now that does two things. Number one, it shows us that that this was righteous, what they said, that this was right and true. God endorses everything they said by this great sign of shaking the place that they were in. That's kind of an amen of God saying, you've said it and you've said it right. And then he grants them the very thing that they asked for. And he grants it by the Holy Spirit of God. And God doesn't put his Holy Spirit upon those who are disobedient to him. They were right to say the things they said. They were right to ask for boldness and God granted it to them. And when we do the will of God, we have peace. We have a peace that surpasses understanding. If you don't believe me, try it. Go do the will of God, no matter how uncomfortable it might seem. Proclaim the gospel to somebody. And then afterwards, successful or not, in the eyes of the world, you will have this peace that surpasses understanding. Rejoice 
and pray and you will have this peace that surpasses understanding that will guard you from temptation, that will guard you from anxiety. The everything that could have made these people anxious in the book of Acts, the leaders that crucified Jesus looking at it, the people being stirred up, later things when more persecution came and they started losing jobs and clients over these things and they, they became poor and there was a famine in land, all these things that could have made them anxious, they relied on God. They clung to him and he brought them through it. Now let us follow this example. As occasion comes for us to be anxious, let us indeed in, and instead rejoice and pray and experience this peace that surpasses understanding. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, you are indeed good beyond all explanation that you would grant this joy to, to your servant Paul who was in situations far worse than most of us listening to this can imagine. But Lord, there are some listening to this that are suffering for their faith. Lord, I pray that you would grant them boldness in it. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them the faith to seek you in prayer in all these things. I pray that you would grant them the faith to rejoice even in the midst of difficulty. And Lord, I pray that the result would be this great peace that surpasses understanding, that's better than understanding things. Lord, may we seek you and seek your peace more than and before we seek understanding. Make yourself known through your people. Make yourself known to your people that we will endure the difficulties, that we will glorify your name in life or even in death. Lord, I pray that you are glorified in this today. And I pray you work in the hearts of those who have heard it today. For Lord, indeed, your word shall accomplish its purposes. And that is our prayer this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Why, well, thank you for being with us. And, and I invite you to contact us with any kind of questions or comments you might have on this. Here's the contact information here. You can find our church at whitesrun.org. And you can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. One more word about the scriptures that we looked at today and the ones we've been looking at indeed through all of Philippians is this. It, it all assumes a context of a local body of believers working together in the gospel. If you are not part of a local church, please let me invite you here. And if distance prohibits you from being here, Please let us help you find a Bible-believing congregation in your area that you can meet with in person and that you can worship with. Because we were not made to go it alone. We were made to do these things together and to have this peace that surpasses understanding amongst us. Remember, Jesus gave a special promise concerning us gathering together. He said, uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, among them. Now we know that the Holy Spirit is in us and therefore Christ is in us, but it's different when he says it. He says, there I am in the midst, there I am among you, plural. And you're missing out on it big 
You're missing out big if you're not part of a local congregation. So I encourage you today, get involved with a local congregation. Contact us. We'll help you in the search. We'll help you learn how to evaluate one. We've got search engines uh, that, that are on the web that we can point you to that can help you find people that believe uh, as the Bible presents it. So for now, God bless you, and may you indeed enjoy this peace that surpasses understanding.